Well, take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verses 29 to 34 as we continue our study of this important book, in fact, in the important chapter about the resurrection. So this is, this is really the story of our future. But it's almost like Paul uh, inserts a little bit of real practical advice in the middle of it. As most of you know, uh, Priscilla and I have graduated happily into grandparenthood uh, the last, uh, what, 10 years. It's, uh, it's great. Uh, so many things are no longer our problems. <laughs> we have a nice, uh, really a wonderful batch of, of preschool grandkids, and it's a great stage. Uh, but they have an interesting worldview. It's me, and it's now. It's me, and it's, it's now. And, and uh, it's so hard to learn to wait your turn for something good. And, and it's really hard to be, to be patient if something's unpleasant. But we kind of smile as we, we see them go from delight to despair, back to delight, and then despair, because we say, well, they're going to they're gonna grow out of that. Except some adults never really do get past me and now. And, and Paul is really writing about that in this section today. Because if you believe that this life is all there is, then you will be about me and you will be about now. In fact, just jump ahead to the last part of verse 32, which captures that philosophy if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. That's actually a, an Old Testament uh, prophecy from Isaiah. But if there is no God, if there is no future, if there is no eternal life, then it almost makes some sense to just live for, live for now. But Paul has been teaching in this chapter the most important truth of uh, our resurrection is guaranteed. There's going to be a real, literal existence that we have because Jesus really, literally rose from the dead. And so if we have an eternal future, we cannot just live for now. So our belief really does shape our behavior. It must. It must. And so he calls us to that. It's an interesting way that he does that in these particular verses, 29 to 34, because he, he presents two contrasting scenarios, but both of them based on a, a false hypothesis. What if there was no resurrection? What if there was no resurrection? He applies it to what seem to be more unbelievers and then to those who believe and know there is eternal life. And the most perplexing statement of all is the very first one. And here we go, verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Oh boy, what is that saying? The bottom line is he's saying it's foolish that some are teaching that you should be baptized for the dead 
because they're the same people who actually don't believe there's a resurrection. So he's, I think he's kind of calling them crazy, saying that makes no, makes no sense. If there's no resurrection, there were obviously some in the church, attending the church, who did not believe that resurrection was something real, physical, and literal. It was probably coming from false teachers who were influencing maybe confused new believers about that issue. There was in their pagan Greek background this idea of the immortality of the soul, but that's a pretty vague concept. But no, Paul had based everything on the literal resurrection. In fact, that's how this chapter began. He says, our faith completely rests on the literal death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's why he emphasizes in, back in verses um, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, that, that Jesus appeared. I mean, like physically, he was real. He appeared to Peter, the apostles, to 500 people, to Paul. That's how we know that the good news of the gospel is true, is that Jesus is alive uh, we will live because Jesus lives. So it doesn't matter what we believe about the resurrection. Paul's saying, absolutely yes. But his first argument for that here in verse 29 is really he befuddled a lot of, a lot of readers in the last uh, 2,000 years. What is the baptism for the dead? One Bible scholar I, I read said that there are probably 40 interpretations of that. Another one said maybe 200. So uh, we're all kind of a little bit like, what, is, what does it mean? And, and who are these, these people? But clearly, with all of that variety and confusion, you don't build a major doctrine to, on which to base your life on a verse that could be taken a zillion ways. But I think we can settle some things that it does not mean. It cannot mean that... Uh, if you have an unbelieving relative who dies, that you can do some kind of proxy baptism on their behalf to get them out of hell, okay? Uh, it cannot mean that. Uh, actually, the Mormons take this verse to basically build that doctrine that they can rescue from eternal judgment a non-Mormon family member who has died. So a kind of a proxy baptism. That that would contradict everything we know from the New Testament about salvation. One of the most clear verses is Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed to man to die once, after that the judgment. There is no change in eternity after you enter eternity. There is no, no second chance after death. The Bible is clear uh, on that. So to say somehow that by proxy you could do something to help the dead would be unbiblical. So, except for this confusing statement, there's nothing that says you could be baptized for the dead. In fact, there's nothing that says we should ever pray for the dead or pray to the dead. Or for that matter, to light candles for the dead if somehow you think that by doing so you are helping or affecting someone who has died. That's, that's that's an unbiblical perspective because our eternal status is settled by our personal decisions in this life, not someone else's efforts on our behalf later. So while we understand what it does not mean, what does it mean? What is Paul talking about? Among several more plausible explanations, I'll 
I'll, I'll take a view that um, even if it's if I don't quite have it right, it doesn't change the overall point or perspective uh, impact of this passage. My first observation is that in verse 29, do you see the pronoun who he's talking about is those or they or them? He's talking about other people, it seems. Other people believe this. So if there is no resurrection, they are, they are doing something that doesn't make any sense. And then in verse 30, he switches to us. And as for us, and then he applies this, this same false premise, actually, to, to believers. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, way of, of, of presenting this logic. But those who are baptized for the dead, it seems to have been a practice of some in Corinthian culture, some in the church. And Paul is saying, you are essentially crazy because the very same people who are teaching or promoting, you know, a resurrection isn't really a literal, you don't, you don't like really have a body in heaven. Uh, the same people who are saying there's no literal resurrection were evidently those who were saying, oh, but you should be baptized for the dead. So they were, they were, they were borrowing, it seems, from, from their, their, their pagan practices of the past, uh, perhaps mimicking, it's been pointed out, there was, there was a lot of different varieties of pagan religion, but across the gulf from Corinth, a little bit to the north across the gulf, was a city of Eleusis. And in their pagan religion, they had these, this purification kind of a baptism that was supposed to ensure your afterlife, and some practiced it on behalf of others. And so, so it's very possible that some had who had come into the church are still affected by that. It is hard, isn't it? If you've maybe come to faith in Christ later in life, it is hard sometimes to realize, oh, wait a minute. That's not true then, is it? And so different assumptions that you have, you find out might not be true. That's why what, uh, what Luke Hatfield shared here uh, in, in his message last week about the emphasis of being immersed in the Word of God daily. It's my light. It's my lamp. It's what I got to do every day. That is what will transform our mind. It'll change what we believe and what we see today. If you change what you believe, it'll change the way you live and what you do. Uh, even going beyond, you know, trying to be baptized for somebody, we have to even be careful of thinking that somehow the physical uh, ordinances that we do are somehow like adding a merit badge to our eternal resume. We, we believe that we should take communion. As we did last, last week, we take communion. We choose to do it monthly. Jesus said, do this in remembrance. Why do we do it? Jesus said to do it. And the New Testament church in Acts did it. That's why we have a physical reminder. But remember, it's a symbol of what Christ did on the cross. The other thing we do is baptism by immersion. Why do we do that? Because Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them. And in fact, the New Testament church, that's exactly what they did. They believed and they were baptized. They believed and they were baptized. So there are two physical things that we do as symbols of spiritual realities. They are not spiritual uh, merit or, or brownie points. So as you think now back to this issue, what about those who have died? That's why we share Christ with our friends, because it's appointed a man to die once, and then judgment. What about friends or family who have died, 
and we have no assurance of their salvation. That's where you trust a faithful creator in doing what is right. And we, and we leave it there. But salvation is utterly dependent on personal faith of, in Christ's gift of salvation. Decisions we make in this life. So there were false teachers who had, uh, if they had been right, and there was no literal resurrection, Paul is saying their, their baptism was foolish for the dead. Now Paul kind of interestingly turns that same logic on himself, us, as for, for us. Again, just kind of letting the logic play itself out. So if, 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 if there was no resurrection for the dead... What would that mean? What would be the, the implication to us who believe that it is? Now, of course, Paul knows that Christ has been raised. Already in verse 20, he said, but Christ has been raised, for the, raised from the dead. So he's not doubting that, but he's saying, essentially, in verses 30 to 32, we would be silly fools to risk our lives for a message of the gospel of Jesus if there was no eternal life. That makes sense, right? Why would you risk dying if there's nothing on the other side of death? Verse 30. As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If I, I die every day, I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus. If I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Why would, I, why would we endanger ourselves, verse 30, and verse 31, I die every day. Now, you don't actually die every day. He has not died. He's writing. This is a, this is a metaphor, but it's a metaphor, a, a, a reference to the fact that he literally risked death daily. And if you question that, go back to a, book that, a letter that he wrote just after this to the same people. Second Corinthians, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rod. Once I was pelted with stones. They intended to harm or kill him. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I've been, in constant, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, bandits, fellow Jews, Gentiles, city, country, sea, danger from false believers. I, he risked his life daily. So these are clearly literal events. You don't make this stuff up. You don't count how many times unless it literally was happened. So that means that he did not know when he woke up in the morning if he would, wake, he would go, to bed in that, go, to, go to sleep in that same bed or be with Jesus. He risked his life. He's not depressed about it. In fact, uh, he seems to even consider it a privilege. I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word glory or pride or, or boast. He says, every risk I've taken is worth it. So don't feel sorry for me. It's a privilege because I get to be part of your spiritual story. So I risk my life knowing I will live forever, helping you to know how you can live forever. So he says, 
that's a privilege. That's, that's a glory to be able to do that. I don't know about you, but as I, as I read some of these things about Paul's ministry, I, I'm kind of convicted wondering, how much danger would I risk, really, for the cause of the gospel? Um, he considered it a privilege. Sometimes I wonder if we get so used to being you know, part of the church, this church, get so used to being a part of the church that we lose the staggering privilege of being part of the church, to be part of the, a select family that knows we have eternal life in heaven. We're, we're citizens of heaven. So that this cannot just be a, a, a nice place to go for inspirational talks and meet nicer people than the average. But rather, we are actually a gathering of citizens of heaven being equipped to help others become part of a family that will be citizens of heaven. It's, Paul never lost that wonder, so he, he could say, I, you're my glory. It's, some, it's, my, it's my privilege to sacrifice, to invest, to pray for eternal things. He, he, could, he could sing the hymn of heaven. He could think of, of walking streets. He, could, he knew it was real. In fact, he continues with his wrists when he says this. Another puzzling statement. If I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, Tomorrow we die. Did he actually fight with wild beasts too? Did he get thrown to the lions and survive? I mean, people were thrown to the lions in that era by uh, Caesar in, in Rome, but probably not. But the wild beasts could again be kind of a metaphor for facing real, literal death, but the wild beasts could be people, um, kind of like it's a jungle out there kind of a thing. I faced death. Where? Ephesus. Where was Paul when he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians? He was in Ephesus. Uh, look, up, look, look to the next chapter. For me, it's across the page. Chapter 16, verse 9. As he begins to close this letter, he says, But I will stay on at Ephesus. That's where he is. I will stay on at Ephesus. This is, this is across the, the GNC, uh, Asia Minor. I will stay, stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me here, that is, and there are many who oppose me. I love that verse because it says that opportunity and opposition are not contradictory. Opportunity spiritually for the gospel and spiritual opposition to the gospel are not contradictory. In fact, it's kind of like Paul goes, hey, these two things go hand in hand. Great door for effective service. And there's a lot of enemies. He writes this from Ephesus, where he's facing opposition, which makes sense now, back in chapter 15, verse 32. So while this is written from Ephesus, about six years later, he was, he was writing to Ephesus. And he was writing to Ephesus from prison about the spiritual battle. He says, there is a conflict going on that we cannot see. It's over the gospel. It's Satan versus believers. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We need to keep 
the battle in mind, a spiritual war. Living as we do in America, where there is no war on our soil. We don't have a real concept of war. I know I don't, except you veterans, and we celebrate you this weekend. You veterans may know this much better, but, but we think of war on our news feeds and our, not on our front porch. Momentarily, if you recall, some of you who are a little older, 9-11, we thought about war on our soil. But if you live in Ukraine, Israel, Gaza today, you think about war. Do we realize there's a, this war is, is around us with eternal stakes? What is Satan's goal in this war? The God of this world or this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That is Satan's ultimate goal, is to keep the mind of unbelievers blinded to the reality that if you put your faith in Jesus who died for our sins and rose again, you will have eternal life in heaven. That is Satan's ultimate goal. And he is very, very powerful and effective at it. Some places in the world, he, he focuses on um, the occult, the power available. And so, so we have missionaries in, in tribal situations who, who very much, these unbelievers are aware of the spirit world. And the occult has creep, crept into our society, obviously, more and more. And other times, he'll just use more of a secular uh, sense of fear and, and despair, and you're so focused on, on your personal survival, me and now, that, that you, you don't think about the gospel. But sometimes, then, God, then the enemy, uh, the God of this world, will, will change tactics for giving people prosperity. Because if you give them prosperity, then they'll just, that, that's just like a, it'll just draw them on and on and consume them and, 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 and dull their sense of needing God. And then sometimes Satan uses. Uh, one of his all-time major distractions that he's going to talk about here, keep people blinded by their pursuit of pleasure. So when you begin to get a real, real view of what the enemy wants to do, what do we do? We find ourselves dependent. So Ephesians 6.12, a few verses later, Paul says, here's how you win the battle, and pray. Because prayer is a dependence. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I, may, I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the, what, the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. He's in prison writing this. Pray that I may de declare it fearlessly as I should. Yesterday, what was taking place in here in the Discipleship Center is we had 30-some of our middle school and high school students at an all-day seminar learning how to share their faith with their friends. We pray. We praise God for a new generation that's equipped and cares about sharing their faith. They were texting friends. They were assigned. They were. They had gospel conversations by text yesterday. 
Pray for anyone who was contacted yesterday. Pray for our, our young people. But this is where the spiritual battle is won. The spiritual battle is won as we pray in the power of the gospel. But opposition by Satan does not contradict opportunity for the gospel. The darker the world gets, the brighter the, the light of the gospel shines because people are desperate for hope. So Paul says, my willingness to die is an argument against the resurrection deniers because if I fought wild beasts for human reasons, I mean, if I risked death for human reasons, that, that would be foolish if we don't live forever. And if the dead are not raised, then just live by the world's view of pleasure. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. If someone is unconvinced we live forever, or that they are accountable for sin, to a holy God, why not pursue pleasure? A very old beer commercial said, you only go around once in life, grab for all the gusto, right? This viewpoint we could call fatalistic hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. Fatalistic is we're just going to die. Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. You know where this quote comes from is Isaiah then, Isaiah 22. Of course, Isaiah the prophet 700 years B.C. was not quoting it favorably, but rather he said, this is the attitude of some of my Jewish friends in Jerusalem. The scenario was that um, in 722 B.C., about 10 years or so before Isaiah wrote to Jerusalem, the 10 northern tribes, a year ago or so we were studying this, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, because of their sin and refusal to heed the word of God from the prophets, had been taken captive and taken and deported by the Assyrians, okay? The Assyrians were still a threat, and now they were threatening the southern kingdom, which was essentially the tribe of Judah and the capital city of Jerusalem. They were threatening. And in Isaiah 22, Isaiah is telling his, the, the, Jewish, the Jewish people of Jerusalem, sober up and repent of your sins. You, you, do you realize you are in peril? And instead of repenting for sin, you are partying in your sin. Looking into that background of that story, Hezekiah was the king, and it's kind of incredible that God in his grace spared Jerusalem and Judah at that time. Spared them for another hundred years, in fact. Because they had a godly king, Hezekiah, at that time. It wasn't because of these people, but, but their attitude was, eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Friends, doesn't this sound so much like America today? Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Um, so far, America has been spared from the threats of those who want to destroy us nationally. I think we're disintegrating spiritually, but we've not been destroyed nationally. We got past 9-11. You know, boy, we're okay. Maybe God is sparing us because of godly Isaiah's. And he's growing his church. We don't know how long. We don't know what his timing is. But when you see so much of America in a downward spiral of sin, you know it's not going unnoticed by God. And so even the unbeliever knows, hey, we're in trouble. Whether they're looking at the, the, the military or economy or government or politics, whatever. You know, oh, dear, this is terrible. And, and, and uh, life is hard and, and, and life is, is, is pointless sometimes. But, but the approach is often, so 
Can't do anything about it, right? Eat, drink. Tomorrow we die. And people indulge in the drug of choice, ignore what happens after death. And Paul, Paul is concerned. He says, he says, I get that, but I'm talking to you as Christians. The world lives for me and now. You're not them. We, we are not preschoolers. Uh, we, we, we are believers who understand eternity, how short this life is. We, um, we have a mature view. We have a long view. So it doesn't mean we live grimly. We, we are, of all people, can live joyfully, but we live responsibly because we know we are accountable for this life in eternity. So, so he's saying, essentially, we can't just live for great food, great vacations, next round of drinks, next show on Netflix or whatever. We understand eternity. It's like he's shaking them on the, with his shoulders. And if you don't think he's shaking them by the shoulders, then you won't understand the last two verses because he gets very direct, very blunt by saying, people, we are those who believe in the resurrection. That's the assumption. He says, we're going through these hypothetical scenarios and people who baptize for the dead, they're, they're, they're false and wrong. But he says, why, why, why would I even risk my life if there wasn't eternity? Because there is an eternity. So in light of there being an eternity, verse 33, don't be misled, talking to the church, to Christians. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So while the world is living to please themselves because this is all there is, we have to live for eternity because we know we need to please God who we will be with in eternity. Verse 33, don't be fooled, essentially. Verse 34, don't be foolish. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. He's, at, he's urging Christians, be careful with your relationships with the eat, drink, tomorrow we die crowd. Because you as believers can catch that virus. His concern is church people who were minimizing their focus. They weren't really thinking about eternity. Bad company corrupts good morals. He's not quoting scripture or an Old Testament quote there. That's actually uh, something that was saying in their culture of the day. It's found in a literary piece, an ancient comedy by Menander the playwright. Bad company corrupts good morals. I mean, that's always been true, right? Company you keep affects your behavior. Why do parents care so much about who their kids hang out with, right? It's so easy to drop your standards when you have friends who are pressuring you to do something that, that you know isn't, isn't right. But this truism that bad company corrupts good morals is not given here as an excuse. Because the reality is, we hang out with the people we want to be like. And so, so the responsibility is on us. I was thinking this week of uh, uh, my dad talked from time to time about crucial decision that he made when he was 19-ish after several years of what he calls his sowing wild oats season. 
And uh, God got a hold of his life and really transformed him uh, kind of in a, in, a, in a complete decisive way. And he said he had to go around to some of his friends and say, I'm not going to be able to hang out and do the things we, we were doing. I'm so glad he did. Because in the state that he was, I know my mom would never have married him. <laughs> and, and there is long-term impact on the decisions that we make. Bad company corrupts good morals. So there's a tension that we have as Christians for how do you navigate friendships with unbelievers, right? Because on one hand, our unbelieving friends need us. They need to have friends with genuine, faithful believers who care and serve and, and love them um, and would take the opportunity to share Christ with them. On the other hand, some unbelieving friends have bad morals. How do you know whether you should be friends with someone or not? Uh, the issue is influence. Who is influencing whom? Don't be deceived to thinking that you are influencing unbelieving friends for good if you are not praying for them and, and seeking opportunities to share Christ with them. I was thinking through uh, 1 Corinthians in this regard. Paul has actually talked about two different scenarios of Christians being friends with non-Christians in Corinth. In, yeah, in Corinth. In chapter 8, verse 10, remember that issue of uh, should you eat meat offered to idols? And Paul said, chapter 8, verse 10, uh, don't eat meat offered to idols in the pagan temples. And those were essentially the social community events that were all entwined with the pagan religion. He says, don't go there. Don't go to those feasts. You'll be influenced by them. Two chapters later, chapter 10, verse 27, Paul says, so if an unbeliever invites you to his house and serves meat, and it might be the same kind of meat offered to idols, he says, don't worry about it. Don't even ask questions about it. Just eat it. Do you see the difference? If you go and eat at your unbelieving friend's house, Paul says, that's an opportunity. If you eat meat offered to idols in a pagan temple, that's a temptation. And so we have to know whether or not we are in a relationship that is an opportunity or if it's a temptation. And so as we think through our friendships, can you be with them without saying, doing, laughing, watching things you shouldn't, etc.? Who's influencing? Paul's warning Christians not to imitate those who don't believe in eternal life because they indulge in pleasure. There's no God. Why not? No eternal life, no accountability. But he says, that's not you. Verse 34. Mine says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. <laughs> Some of you have the phrase about sobering up or wake up. It is, it's, a, it's a Greek term for, for waking up, but it's, it's about waking up with a hangover. It's a sober up, and there's the word for righteous or at you. Sober up spiritually is what he's saying. Think clearly who you are, because otherwise, even as a believer, you can become spiritually numb, asleep at the wheel, in a drunken condition, and you'll fall into doing something foolish, wrong, impure, destructive, hurtful to others. This has been a letter he's been writing to 
Christians indeed, but sinful Christians. They, they were uh, turning the other way. They were looking away at a, when, they, when they had a, a guy that was committing incest in the church, chapter 5. They were, they were tolerating that, that Christians were going to court and suing each other, chapter 6. There were, there were Christians who were going to prostitutes, chapter 6, verse 16. There, there was, they were going to pagan te- idol feasts, and they were accommodating even this heresy of, 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 uh, of no resurrection. Sober up, Christian. We sometimes forget that as we read all these strong statements that he is writing to believers in Christ. Nowhere in this book does he say, you might not be saved. He's writing to people who are saved. Chapter 1, verse 6. Our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Chapter 1, verse 7. You have every spiritual gift. Chapter 1, verse 9. We were called into fellowship in his son. The problem is not that you are not saved. The problem is, chapter 3, that you are like children. You're carnal. You're fleshly. You're living like the world. We sometimes fail to, to see the depth to which we as believers can, can become worldly. Babyhood filled with me and now. Wake up. Stop sinning. That's, a, that's like one of the clearest statements of Scripture. <laughs> stop sinning. In James chapter 3, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. He's talking about sin. We all sin. In fact, James, in that context, was talking about, he went on, we all stumble in many ways. He says, let me talk about the sins of the tongue. We say hurtful, uh, gossipy words that are like sparks that set a forest fire ablaze when we talk bad about each other. Words that hurt relationships in a church, workplace, certainly marriage, parenting. We all sin in many ways. Wake up, stop sinning. If Jesus appeared to you in a vision, I'm not promoting that, he's going to. If Jesus appeared to you in a vision and said, stop sinning, what sin would you assume he's talking about? That's probably the next thing that the Holy Spirit's at work in you with, whether it's, a, it's words, it's, it's a attitude, bitterness, hidden addiction, Impurity, pride, hatred, revenge. Paul's very direct. Stop it. Why? Because we are accountable forever. While those sins are never going to be held against us for eternity, if we have placed our faith in Christ, our salvation is not in jeopardy. Those who put their faith in Christ, it is finished, it is completely paid for but will we jeopardize that which we will value in heaven, that which God will value in heaven by ignoring areas of sin today? For there are some who are ignorant of God. Um, could refer to those in the church, probably referring to the way unbelievers were influencing those in the church. Maybe it's the false teachers who were having an influence or attending services, undermining doctrines. Maybe it was the godless majority in the Corinthian culture, but stop that. Realize they don't understand God. They don't have faith in Christ. 
so you can't follow them. So I say this to your shame that you are imitating them. So, so this, this terse rebuke of Paul comes in the context of this amazing chapter on the resurrection. And he will return to the glorious side of that truth in the passage we study next week. But it's almost like he has to stop in the middle and say, what we believe about the resurrection has everything to do with Monday to Saturday. You have a new identity in Christ. You live forever because he lives forever. You live by a different drumbeat. You, you don't have to be drawn into the attractions and the distractions of the world because you are a forever person through Christ. From the passage that Pastor Nate uh, read earlier, Paul was writing to the Philippians from jail in, in, uh, in, in Rome and made the point. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. We get that. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, the rapture. He'll get to that at the end of chapter 15. Who, Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies, this one. He'll transform this lowly body so that they will be like his glorious body. What a, what a great introduction to what he's going to talk about in verses 35 to 50. We're going to have a new body. We have a new existence. It's very real. It's very physical. It is very relational. So we should live now in anticipation of that. We're headed a different spiritual direction as citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the future ahead of us. And we long to sing the hymn of heaven and to be there. In one, but today we are here. And this day matters. And this life matters. This week, the decisions, the choices, the direction, our intentions, our priorities, they all matter because we are... We are identified with you. We belong to you. We are not who we used to be. When we put our faith in Christ, you transformed us so that our destiny turned completely around from eternal judgment to eternal life. And so we rejoice in that. Oh, oh Father, help us to live in light of eternity, to be a, a joyful representation uh, to our world so desperately in need of hope of eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.